Welcome to another episode of Acts of the Blood God, an independent RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. Joining me as always, my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, Kat. We are recording during a thunderstorm over here, and this is very, very sort of atmospheric. Uh, I mean, it's an October thunderstorm. Those are always kind of weird this uh, time of year at this particular site's location, but uh, let's embrace the symbolism. Please send some of that rain over to California. God knows we need it. Are you guys still like smothering from smoke and, and fire? Oh, no. We just have a mega drought that's been going on for several years now. It's terrible. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sending all my rain power there. Woo! <laughs> I'm just picking up from last week. And speaking of which, we also have our friend and guest. It's Eric Van Allen. Hello. No more Texas thunderstorms. We had one over the weekend, and it was just never-ending and constant thundering. And I live on a hill in Texas. There are, like, no hills in Texas. So... <laughs> All the all the lightning and stuff happens right around my apartment in a very upsetting way. So that's please pretty, stop. That's pretty boss, actually. <laughs> it's yeah. I mean, look, you know, I I live in the hill country, so like there there's definitely more hills than when I was living out in West Texas. But I that's one thing you don't think about when you're picking out a location for an apartment is <laughs> am I in the tallest location in this region? <laughs> am I living specifically in a what? place that will piss Zeus off? What effect man. will this have? <laughs> <laughs> so that's my recommendation for all you RPG heads out there also looking for an apartment right now. <laughs> well, this week we will be talking about the dragon slayer series per request by our $50 patron and blood God discord mod, Brian Cowan. Thank you so much for your support. Yes. We'll be talking about the legacy and the history of this grand Falcom action RPG pioneer. But first a little bit of housekeeping. If you enjoy the show, please go and leave us a review. It brightens our day and also helps the visibility of the show. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and Eric is at Cmoosi, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. And you can follow the Acts of the Blood God on Twitter at Blood God Pod. And we have a website, bloodgodpod.com, where we've kind of collected all of our various episodes. And at some point, we'll start blogging on there. I think we've been a little busy yeah, to this yeah. point. If you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash bloodgodpod. We just posted an interview with Ray Chase, which is now available to all of our patrons. That was Victor Hunter, Eric, and Nadia, and they had a grand old time quizzing <laughs> Ray about his work on Tales of Arise as Alfin, his work on Final Fantasy XV as Noctis, and his work on Evangelion, and among many other topics. And Victor is a voice actor himself, so he brought some of that industry vibes mm -hmm. as well it was a very fun interview you two it was very um i think you described it as madcap when you were when you were editing it <laughs> it, it was a little bit madcap <laughs> because i took charge and that's what happens when i take charge i ask the stupid questions at some point nadia was asking him about the plays that he did in junior high school or something like that so yeah. Ray was that was so good though listing off this yeah, I love to ask when I can. Mm -hmm. I ask all the stupid stuff like, what's your favorite theater show? And they just <laughs> never know how to answer that kind of thing. And I love it. I just enjoyed Ray just being like, what? Yeah, huh? <laughs> he was great. He was just like totally vibing with our with our uh, sort of uh, atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he seemed to be having a good time and yeah. you'll have a good time if you subscribe to the $5 level or above and go listen to the interview. 
We got lots more where that came from. We got Charlene dropouts coming back uh, this week as of the recording of the podcast. Well, we're going to get to the news in just a second. But first, let's talk about what we've been playing, our sacrifices to the blood god. I will go first this week. I got to check out Pokemon Brilliant Diamond and Shining Pearl, the remake Ooh. of Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. You can Ooh. find my review over, or well, my preview, I should say, over on IGN.com. And my main angle was, hey, I actually kind of really miss uh, kind of the older version of Pokemon, the, the version that maybe had a lot fewer Pokemon and a lot less feature creep. And of course, I have a special place in my heart for Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. Because that was the generation that came out while I was living in Japan. So I played that entire generation in Japanese and I was hanging out with the import community. It was a grand old time. Do either of you have fond memories of Diamond and Pearl? Diamond and Pearl was not one of my favorites. I was kind of not really cold on Pokemon then, but very, you know, semi-warm-ish. And I played Diamond and Pearl and said, okay, this is good and and kind of went on my merry way. So it didn't make a huge impression on me. I'm hoping that the remake maybe makes an impression on me. Mm. How about you, Eric? I I have a weird spotty history with Pokemon where I have dipped in and out over the years. Uh, so Diamond and Pearl are actually, I don't think I've played any amount of them at all. Uh, and so I guess the remakes might be appealing to someone like me, but I, I've always kind of just had this thought in the back of my mind about you know, what are the Pokemon remakes for? Are they for people who want to re-experience these games or are they for people that want to experience them for the first time? Can those two like meet in the middle? Uh, so I don't know. I'm curious about it. It's still like the Pokemon game that sticks out the most to me in the near future Future is, uh, is Arceus just because yeah. that looks like such a thing. I'm someone that likes new stuff. <laughs> and so um, I'm I'm into that. But I, I don't know there when when you said earlier about, you know, longing for the days of Pokemon when it was a little bit simpler, when it was not filled with feature creep and all that, there was like a, a stir in my heart for the days of for me, it was gold silver like that was mm. oh blessed days. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, so I, I don't know, maybe maybe I'll give them a shot. Maybe I can go see if there was something there that I missed out on. I definitely vibed with the mood and the atmosphere of Pokemon Diamond and Pearl. It's kind of darker and more menacing than a lot of yeah. the games that came mm -hmm. before since. And I definitely kind of miss that feel. As for who this game is for, it's definitely a nostalgia play for mm. people who grew up on Pokemon Diamond and Pearl because you can kind of count on like like clockwork every once a, a Pokemon game is like 15 years old or so, they're just going to go back and remake it. Though Fire Red and Leaf Green came out actually less than 10 years after the original uh, Red and Blue mm. for the Game Boy. So I don't know. Um, I will be playing these games. I will be enjoying them. I look forward to my pal Chimchar being able to be in Sword and Shield once again. It's been way too long. but. Yes. I also have been playing Diablo 2 Resurrected. Of course, we all know all of the craziness that's happening over at Activision Blizzard with all of the lawsuits. It's been well covered. Um, I ended up picking up a copy and playing uh, with my friends, and it has been fun to go back to it. I'm done with FIFA. I'm out. <laughs> oh, are yeah. you now? You say that now. <laughs> no, I'm done. I, I don't have time uh, to play FIFA right now. And honestly, like... 
I played until like three in the morning one night and then I just was like, yep, time to delete it. It's becoming a problem. Yeah, I guess so. And I mean, you are really heading headfirst into the review season, so you really mm-hmm. don't have time. Mm-hmm. I understand. Yeah, I was too busy, too busy with my life. But there are also lots of other wonderful RPGs to be playing. So, And then I read this like this article by somebody who was another FIFA player that really cut to the heart of it. And they were like, there's this amazing smorgasbord of incredible games out there. And here I am playing the video game equivalent in McDonald's. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> Not even McDonald's, I would say. Not even McDonald's. It's a Whataburger. Oh, no. <laughs> now the podcast has been canceled. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Can't believe you do this to me. <laughs> Can't believe you shoot these shots so early. <laughs> Look, if you're going to take shots at... In and Out Burger. If you come at the In and Out Burger, you must you best not miss, Eric. That's all I gotta say. It's it's hard to hit it because they're so small and unsatisfying. They're terrible. <laughs> Eric, what have you been playing? Uh I've actually been playing RPGs this week. Uh oh my god. I've, I've played two uh that I can finally talk about. Uh the first is The Good Life, which is uh, the new game by Swery uh and his studio White Owls. Uh, dubbed a debt management RPG. So I get a free pass on this. Uh, <laughs> but it's a really bizarre game that uh, if you're not familiar with it, the idea is that you're a photojournalist who goes to the quiet town of Rainy Woods to settle a debt. Basically, you are in incredible debt and a newspaper news type organization has hired you to find the secrets of the happiest town on earth, which is in the English countryside. Uh, Pretty soon after you get there, things get pretty bonkers. Uh, People start turning into dogs and cats uh, at night, and you can also then turn into a dog and cat uh, after you do a few like missions to get that. So wait, do you get a choice between dog and cat or do you turn into cat dog, the notable Nick's tunes character? No, not oh, no. cat dog. This is not Nickelodeon all-star brawl, sadly, <laughs> but uh, no, you, you can do either one and each one kind of has special abilities, but you can also do photojournalism. So you can pull your camera out at any time and take pictures and then upload those pictures to Flamingo, which is like an Instagram mm. type app where Cute. likes equal money. And so you want to try and play up the hashtags that are popular each week in order to get more likes. Uh, you can mine, you can cook, you can uh, talk to the townspeople, you can explore. Uh, there's sheep riding and sheep racing. Uh, <laughs> nice. There's a lot going on in this game, but I keep describing it uh, the way I kept telling someone else uh, at, at Destructoid. And by the way, you can read my review on Destructoid.com that went up today. Um today as of this recording but (laughs) uh it is lake wide and puddle deep uh it really it really i said that a lot and then i also mentioned that this is a game you can tell was made you know or, or backed through kickstarter because it has so many things that it's doing and so few of them really feel like they're convalescing together Mm. into a greater whole like you would think that a a game where you turn into a dog or a cat is going to be really exciting you're going to find things to do with that mostly you turn into dog form when you need to follow a scent for a few specific main story quests and you turn into a cat when you need to climb up the side of a building to get to somewhere you want to go that's really about it Uh, right there's there's so much stuff in this game that just feels like it's things you can do, but not necessarily things that will ever reward you 
fulfillingly for doing so or even really evolve past the you can do this level so like the photography in this game i've played a lot of recent games that have done photography in-game photography very very well and it's stuff like umarangi generation and new pokemon snap uh and this one is very basic you have like a kit lens like a standard kit lens with no zoom uh so you have to physically move uh or a telephoto lens which you can buy or a wide angle lens which you can buy outside of one main story quest you don't really need to buy the other lenses for any major reason and also the photo targets you're going after are kind of just all stationary things in the world you're just looking for things taking a picture of them and then bringing them back to people or uploading them to flamingo like everything I, i stress that like this game is about travel because i spent most of my time in about the 15 or so hours i spent playing through the main story and a bunch of side quests uh walking and running and moving from place to place uh sounds like lord of the lord of the uh, rings yeah yeah it was doing that and it was managing all these meters because it is a sweary game it has a lot of there's a health meter a hunger meter an awareness meter a health meter which is different from your regular like hit points health this is you are getting sick or you are feeling healthy uh and then various other meters like whether you are favored by team cat or team dog because everyone is a cat or a dog and that kind of just opens up different new side quests for you to go then collect things and bring them back to people for money it's it's a very it is conceptually interesting and incredibly charming but none of it ever seems to go past that surface level of wow look how interesting and weird this thing is and the weirdest thing is it is a murder mystery after you get into town and start investigating the secrets, someone is found dead and it's very much implied like you are going to solve who this is and that will lead to the secrets. The murder mystery disappears <laughs> like, <laughs> and and they Whoops. never really resolve it. Maybe there is a side quest that resolves it, but even the ending kind of like tries to put a bow on it, but also does it in a way that's like, ah, oh, you don't really care why this happened. Do you? You just want to live your life and like walks off. And I'm like, no, I kind of do care how this happened. <laughs> There's a murderer uh, running around. Maybe we should do that. Something about that. Yeah. So so all of that is to say, um, if you like sweary stuff, I personally have never played all the way through a sweary game. I've I've played pieces of sweary games and I've watched other people play through the first deadly premonition because that's very fun to do. Uh, yeah but if you like that stuff this might be for you but i'd also say if you have game pass it's on game pass and give it a try because oh yeah yeah. um you know it it is not as i don't think it has quite the level of oh this is doing a thing that not a lot of other games do that deadly premonition had back when it came out and i don't know if the charm can fully carry this for anyone who's not like really wanting a sweary game if you really want a sweary game this is a sweary game but uh if you're not someone like that i think it's a bit harder of a sell he's been working on this game for a long time now he has yeah that also kind of shows (laughs) it's the the graphics are a little dated uh which is honestly part of the charm but uh they're just aspects of the game that i think have been done better by other games since and uh it's it it can kind of show that this is this was a passion project for the team but also was a passion project that took a very long time and had to make a lot of steps along the way you know all the different features that they had to incorporate and stuff so there's a lot of love but it just i hate it when it comes to games like this because i'm like you could tell they wanted to do this but it just did not 
click together the way I was hoping it would. So probably just another one that's going to be doomed to be a sweary cult classic. This will have like a small following of like three dozen fans who will (laughs) adore this game. And Mm -hmm. and that's, you know, that is the appeal of, of these types of games at the end of the day. So, um, but do we want to talk about a good game I played? Oh, what's a good game that you played? Let's talk about Baldur's Gate 3. Oh, man. Oh, here we yeah. go. I heard there's uh, a lot going on there. Yeah, I got to preview the the new patch that launched earlier this week. Uh, and it's the first time they've added new location, like a new location to the early access. So if you've played Baldur's Gate 3 early access all the way through, this is in the Underdark. This is the Grim Forge, which if you get on that skiff in the Underdark, it's where it takes you. Um it's got some small quest lines there. Uh, there's it's it's mainly focused on under dwarves, uh, you know, who are just terrible people, which is always fun for Baldur's Gate. Like, I like interacting with RPG characters that are just so terrible. And bad. is um, Baldur's Gate is like D and D, of course, right? Like that. Yes. Sort of, uh, because I know that in Dragonlance there were something similar to under dwarves, and they were the duar or something like that. They were basically just yeah. Really- Dwarves who lived Dwergar. really far, far down. Dwergar, yeah. Yeah. They lived really, really far down in like the real reaches of uh, the whatever dwarf mountain they all lived in. And they were all like kind of nasty and inbred and really just psychotic. Yep, that's that's them. They're here. Okay. Hi. Hi, guys. <laughs> they're, they're hanging out. They're doing stuff. They're enslaving gnomes to do work for them and yeah. stuff. I ended up using my animal talking to convince uh, a Roth, which is like a giant D&D bull cow, to... Uh, turn against its masters and ram one of them off the side of a cliff. It was great. Uh, Yeah, this is still very much that game. Uh, The new the new locale is really cool. And they added a new class, which is the sorcerer, which is I like to call it the party wizard because (laughs) the wizard shows up and he's like, I brought soda. Who did we needed soda, right? And a bag of ice. The party wizard shows up and says, I brought soda, but three of them have bottle rockets in them and the other three will turn you into toads. And everyone's like, hell yeah, party (laughs) wizard, let's go. Uh, Yeah. So you have like the wild magic subclass that will make it so you can get advantages on your spells, but that might have unintended side effects that could light everyone on fire or teleport you all somewhere or something like that. Uh, you know, with great magic comes great ability to screw it all up. <laughs> so, of course, yeah. Uh, and then you have the draconic discipline, which is the other subclass, which basically means you are descended from the dragon. So you get six scales on your skin and can do things like fire stuff. And and depending on what element your ancestor was, you could also get additional elemental effects from it. Uh, That'll be my class. Oh, it's so cool. It was really, really cool. I like that one a lot. Um and they did a big graphics overhaul. So now it's got that Dragon Age Origins thing where you can get coated in blood and dirt and grime uh, if you don't camp for too long. So you will have battles that you come out of where people are just like soaked in blood and stuff. And they're like, man, I was messed <laughs> up back there. Uh, that is all to say that I, I wrote about this also for Destructoid. And I think I've hit the point where I've seen enough of Baldur's Gate 3. I am convinced that this is going to be a video game that I'm going to want to play. But at this point, I want to play it when it's launching. When it's I mean, out. How many hours have you put into this thing at this point? You've been playing the beta for more than a year at this point. I, I, I go back and forth. Uh, I think total I've got maybe honestly not that many hours. I've probably got about 
10 hours for my playthrough that was base game for the early access. And then I put about uh, 45 to an hour into this preview that they gave us. And it was during that that I was like, okay, I have seen enough of this game that at the end of the day, the early access is evolving so much. They've already added so many new classes. They've had so many updates that are um, save branching updates. So you can't carry your save over because they've added enough new stuff that it would break the game if you tried to bring over old saves. So I'm at the point now where I'm like, okay, I like these characters. I like this world. I like what is going on here. Let's just I, you know, I'm going to follow the game. I'm going to see what they're adding to it, but I don't think I want to play this game again until it's launching. Uh, Cause I just want to experience the full thing. Now I've seen enough previews. Yeah. I'm kind of in the mindset of one of the reasons I haven't played a ton of Baldur's Gate three is because I figure that once it comes out, I'm just going to jump in when mm-hmm. the whole thing is there. I def- yeah. mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of picking up an RPG. That's unfinished. It feels mm-hmm. unfair. It feels uncool. Even if I, I can transfer my save. I had enough of that in the SNES days when you had to play an RPG that was half done. Here you go. It's out the door. There's (laughs) there's a bizarre thing that can happen because there's only like two romance scenes in the early access. uh, And one of them is with a character that you would have to go out of your way to have a romance with. And the rest of them, uh, this happened to my friend Kenneth Shepard when he was playing through Baldur's Gate 3 and he tried to romance Will. you go in for like a kiss and then it like fades to black. And then this big picture of a mind flare pops up and it says in yellow text under construction (laughs) because they haven't put the romance scenes in yet. And I was in a video call with him when he was playing through this and got to that part. And I knew it was coming. I was just sitting there like, Oh my God, it's coming. It's coming. (laughs) Then it happened. And I just cracked up because it's, it's the best thing. It's so funny. And I love that as a mind flayer of all the monsters, like of all the the implications are terrible. They didn't pop up like a Baldur's Gate three splash art or yeah. Thing of the party. Maybe people. Yeah, no, here's the mind flare. <laughs> so great. <laughs> Judging you for like, it, it's for like that horniness. TikTok trend that's like Jesus popping up on the TikTok. Like, hey, what you looking at? Like, <laughs> I'm sorry. I brought TikTok memes into this podcast. It's over. It's done. We're going to be cool with the kids now. Bring all the TikTok memes in. TikTok uh, something. But yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 is just a game that I'm constantly amazed by because I already thought it was a good game prior to now. And then I, I pick up the new patch they've got. It looks gorgeous. Like it is honestly a really, really like beautiful game. It's got so many systems that it's working with. It's got already so many classes and subclasses and, and plot lines that you can follow. And some of the stuff they're teasing with where characters like Gale and Shadowheart will go seem really, really interesting. So yeah, balls in your court, Larry, and I'm waiting. I mean, it's probably not going to be to like 2023 at this point, but yeah, uh, I am willing to wait because Baldur's Gate 3 is a game that is worth waiting for. So that's the headline right there. Baldur's Gate 3 is worth waiting. I should have ran with that. Let's Damn clip it. it out. Be like, Eric Van Allen says that Baldur's Gate 3 is worth waiting for. It's a good headline. I'm like kicking myself right now. <laughs> Getting into IGN mode here. It's worth waiting for. <laughs> Nadia, what about you? What have you been playing? I have been, well, first of all, like, um, uh, Father, forgive me for I am a Nintendo simp. I bought the OLED 
Yeah. yeah so did I. <laughs> Pretty fantastic, I have to yeah. admit. The the screen is just like going from it's Metroid. Gorgeous, isn't it? It is. Like Oh my god. Pl- I was playing Metroid Dread on our old launch switch and then I switched over so to speak to the new one and I'm like, "Wow, this uh this is probably how the game was meant to be played in the first place." Definitely looks a lot better. And so yeah, I'm going through Metroid Dread. I'm hopelessly lost, but I like that. It's a it's quite a punishing game, I have to admit, but in a way that makes me come crawling back. Like I actually have said in the past that I don't like combat-oriented Metroidvanias more than I like ex- like you know exploration-based Metroidvanias. And I think uh, Metroid Dread is definitely the former, but it feels good in a way that I want to keep trying and I want to keep exploring. There is, of course, tons of exploring, but it's uh, definitely more combat-oriented, and I'm very much enjoying it. It's not hand-holdy, which is a change, I suppose, from, say, Zero Mission, which I also love, but a lot of people had problems with how it would tell you where to go next. This doesn't tell you where to go next, so you're on your own, Samus. And that kind of feels like the way it should be for Metroid. So that works for me. Other than Metroid, I actually... Well, this embargo is up, so I can say it. But yeah, I played Endwalker and Mm. had the preview event. And that was really cool, except for the fact that it was all like one of those streams. And I forgot what we're using, and it didn't like my computer at all. And it was just kind of chuggy, but... I still managed to play a significant portion of the demo. Uh, I went through the new tower. I won't say what it was. Well, I think it was already revealed as uh, what it was, but went through that, fought the bosses there, had a great time with uh, our, my little group. Yeah, so uh, we will be talking more about that in Charlotte and Dropouts, which uh, plug, plug, plug will be launched on Wednesday at the time of this, re- time of this recording. Got to interview uh, the producer of the game, that is Yoshi P., he was a really great guy to talk to. And of course, talking about like madcap interviews, I just went up there and said, what's the inspiration for Endwalker? What movie? What movies? Ah. What books? Tell me everything. <laughs> and he's like, well, I can't say everything because I'd spoil a lot of what's coming up on Endwalker and has me going, hmm. But he admitted that he is a huge Christopher Nolan fan. And so the I think he said um, Heaven's Word was pretty much inspired by the Dark Knight trilogy. He's like, yeah, you don't say. I <laughs> I think uh, Dark Knight and, and Game of Thrones, there you go, you got mm. your heaven's word. But for Endwalker, he said, Interstellar, the movie by, well, who was it, Mark Wahlberg in that? It was, um, oh, no, it's Math. Isn't it Matthew McConaughey? Is, I, I isn't it, it was Wahlberg for some reason. Well, Matt uh, Damon's Christopher also Christopher Nolan, underappreciated Christopher Nolan film, in my opinion. Well, there you go. He's a huge, huge fan of it. And um, given how weird that movie is, I'm like, all right, everyone saddle up, get ready. We're going into someone's bedroom in a bookshelf, and this is going to be a new <laughs> map. It's going to be great. So, yeah, I had a, had a fun time with that interview. Again, that's something we'll talk about on Charlene Dropouts, uh, along with Mike. That, sorry. Along with Mike, who also played um, Endwalker on a different session than I did, so we didn't get to play together. But he wrote up a lot of extensive previews for Fangamer that you can, you can look at. And, yeah, uh, looking forward to it. It's going to be another Final Fantasy winter for me. Wow, we spent quite a while talking about what we've been playing. So let's go through the news really quickly. First off, Nintendo Switch Online expansion pricing is here. It's going to be $49.99 per year with the Nintendo 64 plus the Sega Genesis plus an Animal Crossing expansion. That's quite a steep increase in my mind. It's going from like, what, 10 bucks to like 50 That's a lot. It's more like 20 to $50. Uh-huh. But yeah, yeah. I was just going to say it's it's 20, uh, 20 for the individual is the original one. And now it's 50 for an individual. However, 
shout outs to the family plan, which goes from a 35 to an 80. But <laughs> splitting that the eight ways that a family plan can go very reasonable. So shout outs to the family plan. Uh, share it with your friends. I actually am thinking, OK, given that it comes with the Animal Crossing DLC, which looks really cute and fun, by the way. And I think that this is where the future of Animal Crossing uh New Horizons is going to be since they're done with the free DLC. I think that's a really cool addition, but what if you don't care about Animal Crossing? Well, you're out of luck. Hope you, you better care start about caring. Animal Crossing. I mean, you could play a lot of good Sega Genesis games for that amount of money. How badly do you want to play Sin and Punishment is the real question. Yeah. How bad do you want to play Star Fox 64 with an N64 controller, cat? Oh, I'm sorry you missed out on that pre-order, by the way. I know. Well, Pear, uh, my co-host over on NBC, said that he got like four of them and that he would sell one of me, one of them to me at cost. So I'm in good oh. shape. There you well, go. that's something at least. Yeah, I so just I hope... can play Star Fox 64 with it once and be like, aha, I've done it. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye. I just hope that, okay, if you're going to charge us this money, please, 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 please release games at a regular rate. Please. I know the answer is going to be no, mm-hmm. but please, Nintendo's regardless. like, ha, 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 no. <laughs> Oh, uh, Lordy. Nintendo doesn't do that. Nintendo no. operates in mysterious ways. I feel like the expansion pack, like the idea of packing in DLC with it makes it enticing. But I was having this discussion earlier today that I think they could have sold this better. A, if they better explain the pricing, because $50 a year is pretty low compared to, say, your Netflix subscription or even Game Pass. And granted, like we just discussed, Nintendo hasn't been good about updating the Switch Online library, so there's not as much of a promise that you're getting a lot of bang for your buck the way that you would be with Game Pass. But so they they could have put a little bit more forward on that front just to be like very certain that, hey, these are we've got more stuff in the pipeline. But also if they also plan to start rolling some DLC into this and maybe retroactively put, say, the Octoling expansion or the Breath of the Wild season pass onto this thing and we're saying like you know splatoon 3 content in the future could be on it now i think this starts to look a lot more appealing as a Mm -hmm. plan uh but yeah as it is right now you'd have to really want a lot of this stuff and also the the weird thing with the animal crossing horizon new horizons dlc and whether you 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 can still access content that you get in the dlc if your subscription lapses, but you won't be able to access the DLC anymore. It's all kind of fuzzy where it is right now. So it's a, I just think it's another classic case of they could have messaged this a lot better. (laughs) It's a classic case of Nintendo. That's all there is to it. We're talking about this on NBC, but one of the problems now is that it's going to invite natural comparisons to services like game pass and PlayStation Mm -hmm. plus. Exactly. For being totally honest, Nintendo's online offerings have been kind of not great uh, since Switch Online launched, and they haven't done a great job of doing a roadmap, and they've made weird decisions like they'll put out Mario 35 for all Nintendo Switch Online players, which is great and was starting to be picked up by the speedrunning community, and then Nintendo was like, no, you can't have it anymore. We're done. We're taking it away. Yeah, just like... We've seen that it has potential to be a lot of fun, something very quirky and different, something very Nintendo-focused that you would want to pay for because that's what you do. You pay for Nintendo stuff. 
But then they take it away. As you said, Mario 35 was actually quite brilliant. I had a great time with it. And mm-hmm. Nope, it's gone. Now you have, what is it, Pac-Man? I don't want Pac-Man. I want Mario. I think Tetris 99 is still on there, right? Like that it never is, went yeah. away? Thank God. That one's real good. I think Nintendo could make it worthwhile if they had rotating first-party games, like older first-party yeah. games. But they're not going to do that. Nintendo's no. definitely not going to devalue their first-party games by making them free. So, Well, Nadia... FF. <clears throat> well, Nadia, you were already talking about how you got to play Endwalker, and as part of that, IGN reported that Final Fantasy XIV is the most profitable game in the series to date, which is actually kind of shocking to me because it's a subscription-based game. You would have thought that it would have made money hand over fist, but I guess the the dark period plus the all the development time in Final Fantasy XIV made it a little harder to get to profitability. But here it is. Most successful Final Fantasy of all time. How are you feeling? Great. I mean, <laughs> good for them. It's a, it's a really you did good, it, Nadia. Good job. I did it personally. <laughs> I did it all. Thank you very Here's much. Here's your prize. <laughs> no, I think it's great for the team because they're a great team. They're very close. They have like their own little bubble going on in the in the Square Enix sphere, and I think it does them a lot of good. I think it's good that Square Enix actually gave Yoshi P a chance and said, "Okay, if you can turn this around." try because we don't know what to do at this point so they've gone from being the game with a thousand polygon flower pots to uh frankly one of the best experiences online currently and i think maybe what helps them is the fact they practically give away the games like you can play heaven's word for free blah blah blah, meme 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 they the actual games themselves are always on sale for a massively reduced price they don't want you to buy that they want your subscription money (laughs) (laughs) And boy, howdy, have I been giving it to him. You sure have, Nadia. Well, bad news for Cat, unfortunately. While the Monster Hunter Rise PC demo is out, we found out from Capcom that there will be no cross-save or cross-progression from the Switch version to the PC version, which means that I am stuck on handheld. I mean, Monster Hunter Rise is great on Switch, don't get me wrong, but man, I would have loved to have jumped over to the PC version. I am sad. Cry, cry, cry. Have you played it on OLED yet? I have not. I imagine it looks pretty good on the Switch OLED, but uh, it can be a little bit variable on how much better the screen is. I I think the benefit with a game like um, Monster Hunter Rise is that it would just be a bigger screen. Yeah, bigger and clearer, yeah. I, with my, the group that I'm playing with, um, so we're playing Diablo 2 Resurrected now because... We uh, finished all of the Monster Hunter Rise content, actually. Oh, we wow. managed to get all the way up to Hunter Rank 8 or 100 and beat the the highest level monster there is. To my knowledge, there might be a higher one. Um, and now we're kind of waiting for the expansion, which won't be out till next summer. So it'll be a minute before we go back to it. We were debating going back to Monster Hunter World, actually, but ended up playing Diablo instead. You may recall that Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines 2 was... <clears throat> Eric, are you a big monster... <laughs> Eric, are you a big Vampire the Masquerade Bloodlines fan? I seem to recall you are. God, have we not met before? Have we <laughs> <had> <laughs> yes, this we, You are, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I, I would list Bloodlines in my top 10 games of all time. Uh, it is, It is a beautiful, messy just weird rpg and i think back on it fondly uh in the same way that i think back on fallout new vegas fondly we should have had you on our top 25 rpg countdown if we should have for it 
but yeah. Bloodlines 2, of course, like a little kind of heartbreaking. I remember when it was officially announced and I went and talked to the development team behind it. And subsequently, Paradox has pulled Hardsuit Labs off it. That was mm-hmm. like more than a year right. ago. We actually talked to Brian Mitsoda about it. If you're a patron, you can go listen to that episode. Kara Ellison ended up quitting as well. Mm-hmm. There's a new studio on it. Who um, They're finishing the game. I'm not actually sure who the new studio is. I don't think Paradox has actually said. But apparently, Paradox nearly canceled Bloodlines 2, but, quote, received a new pitch that made, was persuasive enough to continue with the hmm. project. So Bloodlines 2 lives on. I'm really curious about what that all means because it's not <laughs> that like... sounds dangerous. It's, it's a battle like royale now. Bloodlines 2... Well, they already got a vampire I battle know. royale. <laughs> I just realized that joke as... I just realized that as I was making that joke. Ba- a battle royale is old hat. We're doing vampire Tarkov now. So you, you are four oh. vampires dropping into a hot zone and you have to get blood and extract. <laughs> um... I don't actually know anything about Escape from Tarkov. That's literally all that I know about Escape from Tarkov is that is the setup of the game. And somehow that's like different enough from a battle royale that every game that is a Tarkov like insists that it's not a battle royale. But then the second you mention Escape from Tarkov, they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But it's like Bloodlines 2. It's not like we saw a ton of that game, but it's not like we didn't see anything of that game. Like there were there were gameplay demos and stuff like that. Um, very simple behind ones. Closed, yeah, behind closed doors, like nothing that was like very public facing outside of a few longer gameplay stuff that got posted to YouTube. But it wasn't it wasn't like early, early stage. So I'm really curious about what kind of a what pitch makes them turn around from the we're going to bin this and b what did they even see in the first place that made them think we we can only bin this (laughs) (laughs) this is not salvageable and and look there is some weird bizarre part of me that's like it wouldn't be a bloodline sequel if development wasn't terrible but at the same time it really sucks for all the people that put a lot of years and hard work into this that they just kind of got the the rug pulled out under from them. And I hope, you know, whatever comes out for Bloodlines 2 can be something that can live up to that. Uh, it's a shame we're not ever going to see publicly or at least, you know, commercially what that original build was like. So it's this is a series that I think has incredible potential. And I think Paradox has even been out there saying that they're now going to wait and see. They were they were going really heavy into the vampire world and now they're very much like, oh, maybe we don't commit fully into this yet. And I want this to succeed because I love the world of Vampire the Masquerade. It's such a cool setting and there's so much stuff that's right there. And there are some cool games coming out. I've heard the visual novels are very good. And uh, the people who made the council are making a narrative adventure game set in that world, too. And I know the six other people out there in the world who played the council will be like, yeah. And everybody else is like, what game are you talking about? It's a great bonkers game, but uh, yeah, it's, I, I don't know how to feel about this. I, I don't even know if we see a bloodlines two again in the future or in the near future. I, I should say like, this is such a weird thing of bloodlines two is just going to exist in limbo. And is it just going to like, pop up again one day the way that dying light 2 did you know is it just going to like appear out of the ether like we're back (laughs) don't (laughs) worry about how long we've been quiet it's all good 
Under the right circumstances, Bloodlines 2 could be insanely successful. First person action RPG that has vampires in it. Come on. You would think it would be such an easy sell. And so much of uh, back when we were at USG, I hosted a panel that was with uh, Kara Ellison. Yeah, Uh, (laughs) I specifically remember turning in a draft one day that was essentially a transcript of that entire panel and being told we cannot publish this. This is too long. I remember that. <laughs> I spent half a day cutting it down <laughs> and just <laughs> weeping. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that was also the right call because even the finished draft was like 4,000 words long. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's like the ideas they had going into that sounded really interesting and also would have been really relevant for our modern times. I think there was a lot of stuff about, you know, why should vampires care about humans? Well, they care about humans because humans might be affecting climate change. And if the climate goes bad, vampires can't be immortal through that. And there's like cool ideas. (laughs) <laughs> we're going to explain climate change now on the blood god pod. Yeah, how does how does climate change affect vampires? Well, because if the va- if if the waters come up and the sun gets hotter and burns down everything, then it's what? It's still are the coming vampires? out at night. It's not like climate change is changing the day night cycle. Also, if all the humans die out, then the vampires got nothing That's to feed on. That's the problem. On. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, and I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff to explore there. Um, so shout outs to that old article. And also like, I was really interested in seeing what that game was going to become and, you know, hats off to unnamed paradox studio. You now have a lot of work and expectations ahead of you. Um, best of luck to that team, I guess. I'm glad that we got to have vampire climate change discourse on this podcast. Makes me pretty happy. It's about time. About time. And finally, there's a bunch of new info on Avowed. And you guys remember, sorry. Moving on, do y'all remember Avowed, the new first-person RPG from Obsidian? Mm -hmm. It's apparently going to be like Skyrim, which I guess we were kind of all guessing. Yeah. Windows Central posted a ton of new info about Avowed. Well, info that is rumored, but it sounds about right. And Apparently, there's going to be multiple classes, dual wielding, um, all of that jazz. But of course, it's also set in the Pillars of the Eternal, uh, Pillars of Eternity universe, which means mm-hmm. that it's going to be based on that lore. And actually, I was a fan of the Pillars of Eternity universe. It was a had a little bit of that vibe of Planescape Torment to it, especially Ooh. in the way that they were handling immortals and resurrection and all of that stuff. So I enjoyed it. But apparently it's well into pre-production, could be ready to be playable by E3 2022. Wouldn't be shocked if it came out in 2023. Eric, are you big? Are you excited about Avowed? Yeah, I mean, like I said before, if if I'm putting up some of my favorite RPGs of all time, Fallout New Vegas is up there too. And I generally like what Obsidian does. It always does. goes back to Fallout New Vegas. It does. Mm-hmm. I just I don't know why it's this year, like th- this last like eight months. I've just been thinking a lot about that game because, uh, mostly because I just look at what Fallout is these days, and I'm just like, man, that's that's not what I want from Fallout. Uh, For some so- reason, on Tumblr, there's a sound file. Someone took the opening where you get shot by mm-hmm. the, the main guy. 
But instead of the sound of a shotgun after he gives his speech, it's the sound of someone whipping a PVC ball at your face as hard as possible. So I, that just comes to mind whenever I, I, I think of Violet New Vegas. Poof! That's the sound. It's just really pretty pretty distinct this is like a tiktok meme i think you accidentally stumbled on a tiktok meme nadia (laughs) i probably did but you know the precursor of tiktok memes that sounds about right but what is who thinks of that who sits there and says i'm gonna take that that sound clip and 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 replace it with the sound of someone whipping a pvc ball as hard as they can against a wall like as someone who has a brain that is broken in that very specific way, it just happens and it fires in your brain and then you just have to make it and get it out of your brain and curse other people with the knowledge. So Millennials have problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're working through it. Um, we are broken. But yeah, like Obsidian makes Skyrim is already a really good pitch to me. I've never messed around much with the Pillars of Eternity stuff, but hearing you compare it to Planescape Torment makes me sit up in my seat a little bit because... Uh, I, I that's one of the games that everyone tells me after I list all my favorite stuff of the last five, 10 years, they're like, how have you not played Planescape Torment? So uh, it's the best RPG, apparently. Yeah, yeah. I, I say like, oh, I love Disco Elysium and Fallout New Vegas and stuff like that. And they're like, how have you not played Planescape Torment yet? Um, Got to play it. Yeah, no, clearly Stop maybe, playing Baldur's Gate three, the beta play Planescape Torment instead. Maybe that'll be I've made it a tradition now that every winter holiday break, I knock an old game off of my backlog of shame. So this last year it was Super Metroid. I finally nice. played Super Metroid for the first time. Uh, maybe Planescape Torment will be my holiday shameful game of the year. It's basically on everything at this point, too. You can even play it on Switch. Mm, I'm going to want to play it on PC. I like the the feeling of a good PC RPG. It's a good PC RPG sort of game. but. As far as Avowed goes, all of this sounds good. Uh, I I tried playing some Skyrim again recently, and that game looks pretty, is pretty, does cool things, lots of fun stuff, but there's something about Obsidian RPGs that just always go a little bit farther. I love the way they design their quests. I love the way they what interlink their Skyrim, worlds. So. But hear me out, buggier. <laughs> Obsidian can do it. The, the bugs are part of the charm, all right? <laughs> Maybe I do like really buggy games. That's what I need to come to terms with. We're RPG fans. That's what we do. Crave, buggy games. Crave the glitching and the breaking. Skyrim is nothing but bugs. It's defined by its bugs. It's yeah. Fantastic. But it's, it's something like working through all the bugs and glitches and finding this really incredibly well-written quest line or this really good bit of dialogue or this character that really like connects with you. That's what obsidian always kind of gets for me. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I'm into this. I'd like to see this. I'd also like to hear more of this because I still feel like avowed is a very nebulous thing. We've only had that one trailer and now this report. And so, I'm I'm excited about the idea of Skyrim by Obsidian, but now I want to see what makes it Obsidian's Skyrim and not just a Skyrim clone. Well, here's one final piece of news for all y'all. Um, as of the release of this podcast on Monday, I will be appearing on MinMax's Trivia Tower All-Star Challenge with Woo-hoo. lots of famous people from throughout the video game verse and We'll be competing for $1,000 to the charity of our choice. 
I will be supporting Our Trans Home SF, which is a charity that is helping transgender folks here in San Francisco be able to get placed in homes because they are a very marginalized population that have a really hard time in shelters. So so that is the charity that I will be supporting in this. And also I'm going to destroy all of them with all of my video game trivia knowledge. So tune in for that on Monday. Please look forward to it. You absolutely will destroy them. Yes, let's do it. We're going to move on to the main topic, but first, a little bit of a bonus. Eric, I finished Rebuild of Evangelion, and I feel remiss not talking about it at least a little bit. Surprise! This episode's going to be three hours long, and I have to edit it. Please. (laughs) I'm so excited. Let's go. Let's go. I want to have at least five minutes with this. Okay. 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 Please, Nadia, give me me a chance. (laughs) All right. I think we'll hit our normal run time talking about Dragon Slayer. It'll be okay. Okay, so I saw Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0. And I have to say, Eric, I didn't think they'd stick the landing. But somehow, at the end, (laughs) I didn't come out hating the Rebuild series. I came out going, wow, after 20 years of all of this, 25 years of all of this, we're finally done. Mm-hmm. Like we finally come full circle. We finally figured everything out. We got the catharsis that we've been looking for for so very, very long. Goodbye, all of Evangelion. Like when, when I'm telling you, you get to the end of that movie and it's it's them on. The, are we saying full spoilers for the section? Are we saying like mild spoilers yeah. for the section? Okay. If you don't want to hear spoilers, jump ahead to the time code that's in the notes, Nadia. Please put okay. it in there. And <laughs> we're just going to go full spoiler here. Sorry, Nadia, in advance. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it vague, but... It's like it's like broken into three parts, right? Yes. Part one is basically a Ghibli film. It's so and, good. And in some ways, it's kind of what I wanted movie three to mm-hmm, be, mm-hmm. which is Ray, Asuka, and Shinji are in a post-apocalyptic town, and Ray is learning how to be human and Shinji and Oscar dealing with all of their nonsense and everything. And it's like beautiful. And they mm-hmm. bring back uh, Toji and Suza. Yeah, they, they bring back the kids from high school and they still haven't given class rep a name. They're never going to give her a name. It's It, it starts with like an H, <laughs> I think. It's like, no. No, it, it, no, no. They Hikaru? call her. It's like, hey, it's class rep. Oh, yeah. They, they don't always name call her, her class rep. Yeah. No, it's like, she, look who I married. It's the old class rep, but they don't actually name her. It's it's great. I think it's it's them carrying on the running joke because I think she does get named in the series at some point, but like they just all call her class rep. And that that part alone was almost worth the price of admission because I was thinking about this the other night because I watched End of Evangelion again recently with someone, two people actually, who had never seen End of Evangelion before. And that was a ride. But mm. uh, the whole time I was thinking about how so much of that series takes place purely within Tokyo three, purely within nerve. And that part of thrice upon a time where you are in this rural town and you are far away from like the cold, cold halls of nerve and the like claustrophobic Tokyo three. And you're just out in the rural landscape and everyone kind of has that moment to like breathe and deal with their demons. Like going to the farm is therapy in this movie. And but more to the point, everybody's an adult. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that's actually kind of one of the things that I like about this movie is everybody gets to grow up. 
mm-hmm. finally, after all these years. And it feels like it's Anno saying, I grew up. My characters yeah. grew up. You you can't watch this movie and not like all of Evangelion is also a metatextual thing about Anno himself and the way he has grown and dealt with his own stuff over the years. And it's it's kind of hard because, you know, there's always the argument about you know, auteur theory and ownership and stuff like that. But like, this is very clearly Anno's putting a lot of himself into Evangelion. And so to see him come to this part where he can let these characters go and let these characters be not stuck in this world where they're just children being put through suffering and pain constantly. <laughs> like it is so cathartic. And and again, mm. I go back to the ending of this movie where they're on the train platform and Mari reaches down for Shinji and the Hikaru Utada song hits and you are just like, oh, <laughs> it's freaking Mari. It's I, like she's so popular. But I was so I was watching this with a friend of mine. Mm. And at the end, I was like, well, well done to them. Like mm-hmm. end of the movie. I still know basically nothing about this character after two movies. Except uh, that apparently she's bi and has a thing for Asuka and they have a nice little cuddle. I'm totally into that. She somehow was old enough to be there with Gendo in college and helped uh, Gendo <laughs> and Yui actually meet or something. Mm-hmm. Like she's ageless. I don't know. Like that character is kind of a hot mess. And so it's kind of weird that somehow she manages to end up being the glue that brings everything together. <laughs> First of all, like there there was the aspect of like who's Shinji going to end up with and I was glad it was Mari because like Asuka and Shinji are too broken for each other and Rei is his mother. So like let's not yeah. go down either. But I think Mari like my favorite reading of of her as a character is that it's Ano basically putting his thumb on the scale and saying like I'm going to introduce something that will change Evangelion. I mean they kind of bring those themes up in the idea that like, Hey, this might be a time loop and stuff like that. So if you go and read, uh, the background, like the character of Mari was introduced kind of against an Anno's will. Mm-hmm. And she went through many different iterations and she, that's why like her she, as a character, she is so confused. Mm-hmm. I feel like. And so they finally landed on her kind of being a creator's surrogate mm-hmm. in helping to bring the story to a close or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's pretty artificial thing. It brings me back to um, if you go and listen to the Talking Simpsons is a what a cartoon with end of Evangelion, which is highly recommended. One of the things they talk about is Anno apparently wanted to bring Shinji to the point where he could smile and have Aww. like be happy and he couldn't do it mm-hmm. maybe it was because ano himself was quite depressed i don't yeah. know but like he just shinji was too broken and i feel like he was still trying to do that with the rebuild films and finally he was just like screw it i'm just introducing a new character and also doing a time skip where they grow up and now they're going to be just mature enough to be able to work through their problems. And they have this other character who helps bring them together. That's how I square this circle by using duct tape. And that duct tape is Mari. The, I think the subtitle of thrice upon a time is like so crucial to this, because if you look at every end of Evangelion, like that's why it's called that it's the thrice time that he's tried to end it, end all of this. And like the first ending of the TV series is very, 
warm, bubbly, fuzzy, happy ending. Congratulations and all that. She figured it out. Yeah, but it feels hollow, right? You're mm-hmm. like, what do you mean he just got over all this built-in trauma? He thought and about it for happy? a while and then he was like, I think I'm going to be I, okay. Yeah. And and that's him accepting instrumentality and just, you know, living on in the the big tang bubble and all that. And then you come to end of Evangelion. It's like, hey, no, Shinji went through some stuff and we're going to really wrestle with like who Shinji is as now a character. Now he's just broken. He's he is broken and he has some really bad internalized stuff that he is going to have to work through in a way that is still very jarring to watch today. But it was a different kind of catharsis there where it felt like there, there's a moment in end of Evangelion where, you know, the the image of Asuka is basically like yelling at him like you don't get anything from me. He's like, just tell me I'm worth something. Tell me I'm allowed to live. And she just gives him silence. And so he's like, fine, you know what? I deserve to live. And you don't, I don't need permission from you for that. And that's its own feeling of catharsis there. But here it's like, Ano gets to step in and say, okay, I get to end this a third time. I'm going to do it my way. Everybody gets a happy ending. And Evangelion's done. (laughs) (laughs) We are ending this story. It's over. I mean, he literally has Shinji wish for a world without Evangelion. Yeah. (laughs) And then they go into the real world, which it's really hard to pull that off and have it feel not dumb. And I'm going to be honest, it still did feel kind of Wouldn't silly. Wouldn't it be like oh, that episode of, of where Homer went into the real world and that Treehouse of Terror <laughs> it is, episode it is a went to erotic cakes and never came out? <laughs> it is a little bit. I like that comparison. It's what I can think of. But they did that in End of Evangelion as well, where they turned the camera on the audience and mm-hmm. said, look at you losers. They're, they're like, <laughs> this sitting is a in the movie theater. Yeah. This, this is a fantasy. This is not a reality that will help yeah. you deal with who you are. And like there's just different kinds of catharsis in each of these movies, but the one that Anno reaches in thrice upon a time feels like he has moved on. And I think that is honestly, as an Evangelion fan that's been watching for years at this point, like this was the catharsis needed. This was the moment where we can be like, we can move on now. We can, Oh, they're all no more suffering for the children. No more suffering. No more pain. No more Evangelions, and and everyone gets to go live a happy life. Uh, Good job! Like this, twenty twenty one's been the year that long suffering creators can finally mm-hmm. leave behind their products. Sakurai, mm-hmm. Ano, mm-hmm. they're all free. Good job, Yoshi P. Next. <laughs> And now Ano's going to go make Shin Ultraman and live out his dreams in kaiju good, movies. You know what? And good for him. Shin good Godzilla him. was was a banger, so I'm very interested in Shin Ultraman. All right. That is our spoiler-filled discussion of Evangelion, Thrice Upon a Time. I think some people were saying that we should do a special about the rebuild films. And honestly, I'm up for it, though. I, I just needed to get that out. I needed mm-hmm. to talk through it mm-hmm. after seeing that movie. And I meant to do it last week, but I completely spaced it because I was in FIFA space. So <laughs> the FIFA gets to your head, you know, you can't can't do anything else but think about it. Yeah, I I'd be open to a to a special talking about that. So do you want to <laughs> hear us do a special? Well, send me a note on my Twitter at the underscore catbot or on Patreon or through the Discord. Just you know how to reach me. Cat at bloggapod.com. Leave a message, leave a comment on bloggoppod.com, our website. Or maybe I'll just write a thing on our website. That'd be ooh, fun. Ooh, Writing. A blog. Wow, Writing. blogging. All right, it's time for our main topic, Dragon Slayer. Don't go away. 
Okay, it's time to talk about our main topic. And honestly, I debated putting this under the PCRPG quest umbrella because we're going to be talking about it again not too long from now. Maybe not the series as a whole, but definitely Japanese PCRPGs. And this is like the defining Japanese PCRPG Dragon Slayer. Uh, before we start, thank you so much to Brian Cowan, who is our mod over on the Discord and also a $50 patron. The whole thing is, if you are a $50 and above patron, you get to choose a topic for the podcast. And also, a $100 patron actually gets to be a guest on the podcast. We'll be doing that before too long. But okay, let's talk about it. Dragon Slayer, this is what Brian wanted us to talk about this week. And we've talked about it a little bit here and there over the history of the podcast. We talked about Dragon Slayer during our action RPG episode, what makes a good action RPG. We talked about Dragon Slayer during our Axe of the Bloodgod 300 RPG Pioneer episode, and that was pretty fun. But the gist of it is Dragon Slayer is one of the most important Japanese RPGs ever. It is like the Ur-Japanese RPG. It even influenced Dragon Quest. It came out two years before Dragon Quest. It was the game that kind of, in so many ways, influenced everything from Dragon Quest to Zelda onwards and upwards. So what is Dragon Slayer? Well, it is a Nyon ancient RPG series from Falcom, according to Nadia's notes. And yeah, it is pretty ancient at this point. One of the oldest JRPG series still going. It played a major role in shaping action RPGs, Metroidvanias, and in the original Dragon Slayer, Basically, it was a lot like adventure, and you would yeah. bump into people, mm -hmm. and they would die. You could only have one item. It was a, a thing. Very, very basic, Nadia. Yeah, actually, if you go to Jeremy Parrish's uh, NES Works and his other retrospective series, he has some really interesting retrospectives on Dragon Slayer and other early, early Falcom NES conversions. But yeah, this was, uh, now that you mentioned adventure, they were very much kind of hand-in-hand. -hand. Adventure was 1980. And it was obviously a lot more primitive than Dragon Slayer, which really took what adventure started and fleshed it out into something that you look at now and you see it's immediately recognizable and you can say, oh yeah, okay, I see now where Zelda first came from. Whereas even adventure, if you look at it, you don't really see Zelda as effectively as you do in Dragon Slayer. It's a very, a very charming game too when you look at it. I think it was mm -hmm. for the, um, I don't know if it came to the MSX, I do know it was for the PC-88. And looking back at those old videos, man, it's just it's just a trip to, to see all of that. It's so cool to look back and see what these old RPGs looked like. And maybe that's just because like it is before my time. And I'm fascinated at what, you know, seeing the bones of what would be laid to create something. But it, like you mentioned, it's cool to see here in Dragon Slayer and later on with games like Faxanadu, the way that they evolved and and kind of became things that look very similar to other famous games that we see nowadays so um it's it's really cool to fall down the rabbit hole on this one it's definitely a rabbit hole yeah because uh dragon slayer gave birth to many sub-series which kind of some of them even have their own sub-series and it just goes mm -hmm. on and on and they don't really have a lot to do with each other it's just a general blanket that falcom seems to use for their games and give you an idea of what you're going to get into like if you play here's the full like if the full uh, title legend of heroes which is part of dragon slayer trails of cold steel you know what you're getting into you know what kind of a game you have and it might be mm -hmm. the same with uh the xanadu series which is also under the dragon slayer umbrella so it feels more like a filing process than an actual connected universe 
Well, Dragon Slayer was developed in large part by Yoshio Kia, and he was apparently hanging out in a computer store that sold Apple computers in Tokyo. And apparently that store was owned by Masayuki Kato and Nihon Falcom. I did not know that Nihon Falcom was actually a distributor of PCs, but there it is. Makes sense. And he developed a relationship with them, started making games. And he actually made a Japanese RPG before Dragon Slayer. It was called Panorama Toe. came out in 1983. And it, in many ways, laid the groundwork for Dragon Slayer. But of course, Dragon Slayer was a game that he ended up being much better known for. He worked on many games over the years, well into the 90s. The thing was, he had a split with Nihon Falcom at a certain point because he wanted to develop Windows. Uh, he wanted to develop on Windows and that kind of thing yeah, rather than yeah. the PC-88. And um, Nihon Falcom said, uh, no, we're not going to do that. If you do that, you're going to kill the company. So he ended up leaving. He would work on th with them again a little bit later. But in the meantime, that was pretty much when he exited the picture. Naturally, of course, Nihon Falcom continued to be successful. They're still around to this day. And, but Dragon Slayer is still one of its, I would say it's flagship series in so many ways, the series that defined Falcom. And it ended up uh, influencing a lot of other Falcom games, like the Ease games. Uh, was P Popful Mail from Falcom? I think that was it, yeah? Yeah, apparently. Apparently, Kia worked on that, and he worked on Brandish as mm. well. I think he, I read accounts that he worked on it, and he actually started Brandish. I'm not sure which one is true, but he was involved either way. He was definitely one of those developers, I think, who should be mentioned in the same breath as Gunpei Yokoi, the real pioneers who we owe so much to. He, I think he definitely ranks amongst there. Yeah, he was one of those early pioneers who truly would... I mean, I don't think we think of him as much because he wasn't on console. He was right. on PC. And because he kind of faded into obscurity a little bit, by the early to mid 2000s. So he wasn't going to be in the American consciousness. And of course we are, <laughs> you know, um, a little biased here uh, with North American uh, consciousness, English speaking, that kind of thing. But uh, it's undeniable his influence on game development. But of course, Dragon Slayer came out, but then I would say that the game that was quite a bit more influential in many ways then Dragon Slayer was Xanadu, a yes, game definitely. that was released uh, the year after 1985 and was, for the time, one of the most complicated and kind of interesting dungeon crawlers around. Very weird, very esoteric, and also shared a name with a feature film starring Olivia Newton-John that was very bad. <laughs> It was was it a, it wasn't it a musical? It was famously bad, not just it was bad. a famously bad musical. Yes, I think I saw the cinema snob cover it. It looked fantastic in the worst way possible. Mm -hmm. No, it's it's great. You should definitely go watch it. But I obviously I recommend. <laughs> it was loved. If they adopt, I don't know if they adopted it wholesale from the movie because I don't know. Maybe they thought it sounded cool. They liked it, and it was a tribute. No. But Xanadu, hey, I believe, is actually from uh, ancient Mongolia, okay. and it was. Maybe the capital of Kublai Khan, actually. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. So it goes so. way back. It goes way further back than uh, the movie with <laughs> Olivia <laughs> Newton-John. <laughs> well, which one was named? I still want to say it's named after the Olivia Newton-John movie. 
Xanadu is interesting. It takes a lot of effort just to get into the dungeon. It's like a side-scrolling game as yeah. opposed to Dragon Slayer. Mm -hmm. And it uh, is very hard, very weird and complicated. It has this karma system, okay, where you, if you, there are good bad guys and bad good guys. Oh, sorry. There are bad bad guys <laughs> and good bad guys. Mm -hmm. Both will attack you. But if you kill the good bad guys, your karma meter goes up, which is a problem because <laughs> you need to keep your karma down if you want to be able to finish the game. So it's kind of a pain in the butt in that respect. Grand Theft Dragon Slayer, just, uh, oh no, the cops, Fuzz is going to get on me if I uh, fill up my karma meter. They come after me with like maces and so. It makes me think of a, a light gun game where yeah. you, you could accidentally shoot the civilians and yes. uh, end up losing life as a result. Oh shit! But these were like enemies that that would still try and fight you. So this is like the civilians are pulling guns on you, and you have to be like, "Sorry, I run." No. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. I think defines a lot of these Dragon Slayer games and these early Falcom games is how they have these really unique ideas that we still use today, and they're so we they're so valued, and they're there in their earliest form and kind of half baked. But they're still there. There's a germination there that's really important. Both Dragon Slayer and Xanadu were absurdly popular, very successful. Dragon Slayer 2 sold over 400,000 copies across the PC-88 and other Japanese computers. Its success led to Kia's promotion within Falcom, where he made other games under the Dragon Slayer label. Still, And it ended up being ported to basically everything many many different platforms so it's kind of if you were living in japan at least it was kind of hard to ex escape the dragon slayer series but virtually unknown over here unless you owned an nes and you played faxanadu which came out in 1987 did either of you play faxanadu back in the day i did not but my husband's a big fan so i eventually got to play it on the virtual console and that one wasn't actually made by Falcom. Falcom signed off on it, but I think it was Hudson Soft who basically built it from the ground up. And it is very Zelda 2-ish. And that is appropriate because the original Xanadu was also extremely Zelda 2-ish before Zelda 2 was actually a thing. And again, we have that idea of germination where Xanadu uh, has a side-scrolling action. You run into enemies and then you switch to a battle screen that's still action-based and you fight the enemies there. That, of course, was taken for Zelda 2. I don't know if it was directly inspired, but the uh, the idea was obviously kind of built upon. Just even the way that Link moves in mm -hmm. that game. Yeah, is so, exactly. So Faxanadu-ish. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's definitely inspired. It's kind of a circle of uh, Ouroboros of, of inspiration or stealing or whatever, however you want to think about it. But yeah, in the end, what it all means is that Faxanadu was very Zelda 2-ish and kind of... I don't want to say dull looking, but it was had a very distinctive style because it took place within the world tree and the world tree is dying and you have to make it not die. But in the meantime, you are in some pretty, pretty uh, brown environment, at least at first. I remember a lot of games looking a lot like Vaxanadu back in the day. It was actually uh, there would be those games that would try to look semi realish. Mm -hmm. Right. And they would have kind of a more muted color palette, perhaps, as a result. Yeah, this was it was definitely a more um, I don't want to say adult looking, but grown up looking game because you mm. had that mm. not so anime looking hero was, you know, strutting forth with the sword and the shield. So there was that. But I did not play too far into it. 
but it was definitely like I know a lot of people who are big fans of it. It was a very um, it, I think, again, Parrish has a really good breakdown of the game over on NES Works. And he talks about how it is that Xanadu blood and that Dragon Slayer blood. But Hudson Soft did a lot to make the game a lot more accessible to play. Things like hints were were implemented very carefully. The level up system is also implemented carefully. So it's kind of a realization of what the original Xanadu probably wanted to be, especially since it's on the NES slash Famicom, which can scroll. And if mm-hmm. you look at the original Xanadu, chunk, 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 because those old Japanese computers couldn't really scroll very well. Fax Xanadu, of course, is a portmanteau of Famicom plus Xanadu. I love so, it. Fax Xanadu. I remember Fax Xanadu when it came out and thinking, that's a weird name and moving on yeah. with my life. <laughs> <laughs> I actually thought it was a really cool name when I was a kid. Yeah. I don't know why I didn't buy the game. I probably didn't have the money, but just thinking to myself, wow, that sounds really cool, actually. And now thinking back, it's probably good they didn't localize it into like Nasadu or something, Nesadu or something weird. Nesendorma, the new, the new RPG. <laughs> <laughs> that might work. Uh, I'm surprised that they didn't. I'm surprised that they didn't just come up with a more generic title like Go and Hit a Monster, the NES RPG game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fact Xanadu is one that in my own endeavors to dig back into the roots of the things that I like, uh, obviously Tales series and things like that. This is one that comes up. And the adventure of Link, you know, Zelda 2, is just still one of the most bizarre games I've ever tried Isn't to sit though? down and play. It's and wonderful. so the idea of okay maybe we found the even older text that inspired the old text that now like i will understand what what they were all thinking making this thing is intriguing <laughs> to me and of course it comes from a place called faxanadu so <laughs> <laughs> no but you're you're absolutely right about how it is a rabbit hole that lets you go back and back even to me it's all stuff that came out when i was like four years old and, and probably still learning how to use the toilet, never mind finding out about Japanese game developers and what were they up to. But I think the the amazing thing when it comes to things like Faxanadu is what you mentioned earlier, the idea of they were trying to do these things and working within the technical limitations of their time. And so you had these steps within a series that weren't just incremental, but were huge. The idea that now you could scroll so you weren't working with those old weird constraints of not being able to scroll the screen. And it's something that I think I personally, at least as as a quote unquote young of the TikToks <laughs> um, uh, that, that I take for granted is that RPGs are obviously still making strides these days. But the strides being made back then were like, oh, we could move the screen now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and it's cool well, that yes. you can see the ambition there trying. You know, they had all the same ambitions and were just trying to push the technology up with each time. And that's what's amazing about going back to some of this history is you can see them slowly begin to realize their ambitions in real time. And it's that's fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah. And RPGs in particular, when you think about the early days of PCs, as PCs got more complex, so too could the systems that Mm -hmm. you would find in an RPG. And that went for action RPGs as well. And you saw that in the rapid evolution of a lot of these games. And so it wasn't always just about the graphics. It was about the mechanical complexity. Mm-hmm. A lot, That's of why a lot of I actually would have loved to be a fly on the wall and hear Kia talk to the, the Falcom president about moving to DOS and saying, okay, we have to move to DOS because it was probably a lot more advanced versus PC88 and MSX and all those other things he was programming for. Maybe he felt limited 
by these old computers, which I don't blame him. And eventually Falcom did end up porting to DOS. So uh, that went, I, I guess he quit over nothing. But I don't know enough about that particular point in Kia's life that I could say for sure. This is what probably happened, but I think it's a good, probably a good call. Well, here's some other games that came out in the Dragon Slayer series. Did you know that Square actually ported Dragon Slayer over to MSX in the pre-Final Fantasy days? Ooh. That's really interesting. I wonder what they were making around that time. Not a lot. They weren't a very good... They were a tiny company Rad this time. Baby. This was before they made it big. Also, in 1986, it was our third Dragon Slayer game. It was Dragon Slayer Romancia. And it removed a lot of the RPG elements from Xanadu. It was a lot more of an action game. But here was a weird one. It's a little bit like Half Minute Hero. It had an actual time limit. There was a 30 minutes at a time. And it was a very weird, quirky kind of RPG. It was almost like people were, you know, getting very high and then going, but what if you get asked <laughs> that you can go to heaven? You, you get asked, do you want to go to heaven? You go, sure. And then you die. Or if you ask the king... If you talk to the king too many times, you'll be like, all right, stop talking to me. And he'll actually knock 15 minutes off your time limit. <laughs> I love this game. <laughs> this sounds so it's good. It's a very meta game. It really is. For something that came out in 1986. Oh, I need to play this game. This sounds good. <laughs> the, the king can penalize you for talking to him because it's like uh, blah 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 like oh you're gonna make me explain the spiel again huh well I'll tell you what my time is valuable not yours I mean the, the, the idea I mean I think if that came out today people would be like it's a time loop game and stuff like that it but, totally would it would it would be a huge hit today but yeah it's it's ooh, hearing about this like that sort of rogue structure of yes I mean is it rogue or rogue is it a rogue I would say right, right like yeah, yeah, so are you light. maintaining your progress over runs in this? Or? Yeah, I think you maintain your progress over runs, and the idea is you get further afield and you you get strong enough and smart enough to conquer the challenges that are break the ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. So what we're saying is that all of the roguelites of today were fraudulent and just were stealing, stealing from this game. Deathloop's not paying enough homage to Dragon Slayer Jr. Romancia. <laughs> right. I'm telling you, though, like it's, it's really incredible how much Falcom has pioneered. Around the same time that Faxanadu came out, there was Legacy of the Wizard, which actually did release in North America. Um, it came out in 1989. If you look at the cover art, it's your very generic yes. North American mm -hmm. kind of fantasy art from that particular period. It was actually Dragon Slayer 4. It was a side-scrolling adventure that blocked your progress until you obtained skills or items you needed. In other words, it was basically an early Metroidvania. Falcom was very good at defining or inventing genres years and years and years before they would become popularized elsewhere. See how Romancia basically invented the roguelite, apparently. You play the game as a family, a father, son, mother, and pet. Hey, this sounds a lot like... what? What's that indie game that I'm trying to think of? Um... Eric, you know what I'm talking about. Father, son, mother, and pet. Yeah. The first it's thing that comes game to mind that's like a top-down is... action game. Oh, top-down. Oh, uh, Children of Morta? That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking Mother 3 right away, but I guess... Well, each character has their own role to play. I mean, <laughs> see what I mean? Uh, for example, the pet, who's a monster, can travel through a monster-infested caverns without being harassed. The fact that I thought it was Mother 3, which is two brothers, I was like, oh, yeah pet yeah that's like a little brother <laughs> sure <laughs> are you an only child i love that they came out with a 
boring name like Legacy of the Wizard. Gosh, but not that Dragon Slayer is that much better, but still. No, but when you think about how dragons and swords and wizards were regarded at the time, it was just kind of in that very primitive Dragon Slayer sort of frame of mind. Everything, that's the way fantasy was back then. It was kind of boring, actually. Okay, so then there was Cesarean, which is like uh, another offshoot of, of Dragon Slayer and um, mostly confined to PC. I don't think we got an official American release here, but that was really interesting because it's another, again, side-scrolling RPG, but you kind of have characters trailing you, like like options in like a in a Gradius game. So, uh, And what's really neat is that all the characters are different races, different classes you can pick and, and customize as you choose. Uh, once they they each have an age limit according to their race. So the human is like can get live to sixty years old. The dwarf mm-hmm. can live to hundred, and the elf can live to two hundred. And once they reach that age, they can drop dead like at randomly because they're old. So <laughs> you're you have a party of ten, and I guess the idea is to get through the game before everyone dies of old age. That's very cheerful. I like that very much. It's like Watch Dogs Legion. Didn't they have a thing in Legion where they a character can just randomly drop dead for no reason? And that was like a trait they had. So now we just, just they got at, this. At least now. these guys are old. Like, OK, I'm 100 years old. I shouldn't be hunting dragons. You, st- you stupid idiot. And they die. That's a reason to die. You're old and you're hunting dragons. You're not going to last long. But in what was it? Uh, Watch they, Dogs they, Legion. They just die randomly what's wrong with the heart I, th- I think so yeah yeah i remember this okay. from back when it launched but there there was there were characters that would just randomly die and i i like this idea of you're hanging out in your party and, and a character just leaves but not because of anything you did a choice you made or a mess up in a battle they're just like oh i'm dead now <laughs> <laughs> you're like okay one less okay. party member See i ya. guess <laughs> We're going to still take a shot at this. Like, wish us luck. Pour one out for Draugauser, the formidable, <laughs> who just kind of like fell over on a road and we left him there because we had to go kill the dragon. <laughs> we, we put some rocks over him. It's okay. Well, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention Yuzu Kushiro, who is one of the most influential chiptune composers mm-hmm. ever. And he, of course, worked on Romancia. He worked on Sorcerian. And he worked on the early Ease games. And if you look ahead, there's he's worked on some banger soundtracks, including mm-hmm. Streets of Rage, Sonic the Hedgehog, the 8-bit version, and many others. Streets of Rage 2, for my money, one of the single finest yeah. 16-bit soundtracks of all time. All-timer. In all time. And, of course, ActRaiser is practically my number one by him. He's actually really cool. He's talked to me on Twitter a couple of times. Has he? What did he say? <laughs> Uh, actually, I was talking about ActRaiser Renaissance, and someone asked me, as like anyone returned from the old team, and I said uh, he has, and he responded saying, "Yeah, as far as I know, like I'm the only one who who came back from the original team for that game." Yeah, he's still at it even he now. Is. He worked on the wonderful 101 remastered. He worked on ActRaiser Renaissance, and he worked on Streets of Rage Four. So. Yeah, he's great. He's always been great. But he composed the opening theme for Romancia, and he worked on the soundtrack for Sorcerian. Another aspect that is worth mentioning for Sorcerian is that it's kind of an interesting combination of wizardry and Dragon Quest. Um, so kind of the very crunchy PC RPG elements combined mm-hmm. with the uh, more console-focused elements. Um, yeah. You should go read the Hardcore Gaming 101 
uh, kind of essays about this entire series because it's really interesting. It's very dense. It does a great job of describing each game in the series, each of which is very different in many ways. So, And of course, I'd be also remiss if I didn't mention Lord Monarch, which apparently was a real-time strategy game. Oh, there you go, Kat. For That's reasons. It's technically like Dragon Slayer 7, but it's actually an RTS. This is what I love huh. about Dragon Slayers. Uh, yeah, we're going to... It's another Dragon Slayers game, but uh, it's Pokemon. That'd be cool, actually. <laughs> Why not? That'd be cool. So what is the legacy of Dragon Slayer, in your opinion, Nadia? Almost everything at this point. We're talking about an <laughs> RPG series that is still going, technically, through the Trails games and everything like that. Uh, I'm not sure what the state of the Xanadu games are at this point. I think there was Tokyo Xanadu in 2015-ish. And since then, I don't know what the story is with that. But, uh, of course, Trails is going very strong. And you go back as far as you can. And like I have said already, you are seeing at least the seeds of these really important genres. uh, 2D side-scrollers, action-adventure RPGs, uh, even Metroidvanias. Uh, We owe a lot to Kia and his... Uh, I just love these stories of these kind of rogue Japanese computer programmers who buy this weird ass American computer and and start doing weird things with it. Like it's basically the story of uh, Iwata as well. Mm-hmm. So I just appreciate the fact that he was uh, Kia was a, a car mechanic who said, you know what, I can break games instead. So he, he did, went ahead and basically founded the very first bricks of what we talk we, what we were talking about every week at this point. Yeah, I I feel like the legacy that I can see just looking back on it is just that this series is clearly one that was constantly evolving in a way that it never wanted to stay in one place for too long. And I like that a lot about it. Like uh, for, for as much as many other series kind of build upon a thing and iterate and perfect over the years and find a lot of success and, and acclaim in doing so. There's there is something appealing about the team that just seems to be moving around and hitting all kinds of different genres and doing these things that seem so weird to hear about them being done at this point almost 40 years ago. Like yeah, yeah. it's we're we're getting to that point and and I talked earlier about ambition and that's just a lot of what I see here is is people having these ideas and wanting to make them and then trying to work to make them with what technology they had available. And so, yeah, it's it's weird that nowadays the legacy, I mean, as far as it goes for us over here, too, I mean, there is Tokyo Xanadu, which I think has been localized now for for North America. And that's, you know, its legacy kind of exists in other things that aren't very apparently Dragon Slayer. Um, you know, they're in subseries and they're in other games, but it's cool to see that from you know from humble beginnings like Nadia was saying you have this series that ends up being a quiet definer of of so many years and so many games and so many ideas to come it's amazing to me that xanadu next made it to the engage an engage <laughs> game amazing i think they eventually ported that to the pc like an upgraded version of it but i just love i think in the notes i put uh tokyo uh xanadu next engage lol <laughs> It's funny how also Dragon Slayer seemed to lose a thread at a certain point because, I mean, yeah, Tokyo Xanadu is an action role-playing game with, you know, party-based systems and everything. But by and large, it bears very little resemblance to classic Xanadu or classic Dragon Slayer. It's more like Persona. It came out on the PlayStation Vita 
it's much more of a in more of a modern world. Uh, eventually, a much upgraded version came out on PlayStation Four that plenty of people swear by and say that it's actually really yeah, it might good. be worth checking but, out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there are the Legend of Heroes games, which again are very much in kind of their own thing, and they were turn based, you know. So yes. it just started to by the '90s split into a lot of weird and different directions, very esoteric, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah, I actually wonder if Kia had stuck if he had stuck around, everything would have kind of spread out the way it did. Hmm. But it definitely has a legacy. It's one of the defining JRPGs of the 1980s. So much of the action kind of game that we know of today, at least in that style from Legend of Zelda and everything else, owes its roots to the original Dragon Slayer. And of course, it made Falcom what it is today a company that is still very successful and very popular in Japan and with Japanese RPG fans around the world. And that is it for our discussion about Dragon Slayer. Thanks to Brian for giving us the idea. I would like to discuss this more. Stay tuned for our PC RPG Quest episode that is coming up pretty soon, I would say. Maybe not next week, but the week after. We're going to invite a special guest on, and we're going to talk a little bit about the PC RPG scene of that time over in Japan. And so we'll definitely be talking about Dragon Slayer and Famicom and Falcom and all of that. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to the episode. If you enjoy the show, please leave us a review over on the podcatcher of your choice. You can follow me on Twitter at the underscore Kappa. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford and Eric is at Simusi, S-E-A-M-O-O-S-I. You can follow, find our website at bloggodpod.com. You can find the social media, Instagram and Twitter, bloggodpod, and you can reach us over on the Mailbag channel, over on our Discord, over on Twitter DM, cat at bloggoutpod.com. We love hearing from all of you. We'll be back next week, as always, to talk about more RPG news and the games that we love. But until then, for Nadia, Eric, and myself, thanks for listening. Happy adventuring. Something about the word sorcerian. <laughs> and then it was sorcerian. When you have death on the line. <laughs> and then there was. You guys okay? <laughs> we broke cat. She's turning beet red. She's gonna die before I can finish this podcast. Oh Come my on. god! It's Friday. <laughs> Don't die. <laughs> Nadia, please introduce this game. I, I think can I'll literally just... can't. Okay. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Well, if you're all snicker, you're going to make me snicker too. <laughs> I'm holding it. Don't worry. <laughs>